This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from Ashoka, Fazal Hassan Abid, founder of the Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee, takes stock of his organization, which has bettered the lives of millions. He talks about how his organization has extended its global reach while maintaining its local connections and knowledge. Abed also gives tips for change-oriented programs from the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you a presentation from Ashoka's Social Entrepreneurship Series. In this series, you will meet six eminent global social entrepreneurs who are the founding members of Ashoka's Global Academy as they share their insights, strategies, and vision for change. Recognizing the power of individual innovation and social change, Bill Drayton founded Ashoka in 1981. Ashoka identifies and invests in extraordinary individuals with unprecedented ideas for change in their communities, supporting them, their ideas, and institutions through all phases of their careers. For more information or to get involved, visit www.ashoka.org. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and if you'd like us to produce new and even more exciting programs in the future, we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. Thank you, Limelight, for your support of the Conversations Network. And now, here's our presentation from Ashoka's Social Entrepreneurship Series. Brack formerly the Bangladesh Rural Advancement Committee, is the largest non-government organization in Bangladesh and in the world. Fazal Hassan Abed is its founder. A country like Bangladesh with 130 million people, you need to have large-scale programs, otherwise uh, you don't bring about any significant change. BRAC's 30,000 staff members serve over 4 million members with health care, nutrition, microfinance, legal aid, and other services. Over a million children attend BRAC's non-formal primary schools, and only 20% of its work is funded by donors. There's a market perspective in everything, including in, even in development programs. You'll find that there is thinking about whether we want to do this at this cost or something alternative at that cost. These are being looked at all the time. Abed shares with us his views on why it's so vital to think big, how to properly lay the groundwork, how to guide the process, how to employ important checks and balances. He demonstrates the importance of involving everyone to work toward a single, higher goal. In the 70s, there was, there was a book by Schumacher on Small is Beautiful. It encapsulated a thinking about any program which is big is not very good. I mean, small is, is beautiful. It was somewhat a Gandhian kind of principles that uh, big means a, a big factory where people are dehumanized, 
small is beautiful in the sense that you do things, you produce things yourselves and so on. But we felt that in terms of development programs, whatever you do in Bangladesh, if it is too small, it's insignificant, it doesn't solve the problem of Bangladesh. And we decided that if you want to tackle poverty of, a, of the country like Bangladesh with 130 million people, you need to have large-scale programs, otherwise uh, you don't bring about any significant change. So that became our motto, that small is beautiful, but uh, large scale is absolutely essential in Bangladesh. If you look at the first eight years of BRAC, after 1980, we had 300 staff. And uh, by 1990, the next 10 years, we had about 3,000 staff. By the year 2000, the next 10 years, we had grown to about 20,000. And now we have more than 30,000 staff, and we are adding probably about 5,000 staff every year. BRAC works in microfinance, where we have got 4.2 million borrowers. And uh, this year we have lent about uh, $450 million. We are working in uh, developing agriculture, livestock, fisheries. We have uh, programs in education. We are providing primary education to 1.2 million children. I think the first thing, of course, uh, when you want to go to scale, you must be determined to bring about change in a significant way. Um, I've, I have found that uh, not many development organizations think big, think national. That's the biggest problem, I think. When I started BRAC, I didn't have any notion that BRAC will become the largest non-governmental organization in the world. Our idea was that we will work in small uh, pilot projects and that expansion and application will be done by other entities. We got the idea of national replication when once we developed our program in oral rehydration where we visited all the houses in, in, in Bangladesh and we felt confident that we could replicate our programs. Whatever we did, we could go national. But I think the essential elements of BRAC is that whatever we do, we do it in a small scale first. Test it out. It must be first effective, whatever you're doing. And then once you are effective, then you try to become efficient. By that I mean that you routinize the tasks which are essential, and discard those which are inessential. So you become effective and efficient. Once you are effective and efficient, then and then only you can start expanding. And that's what has happened in Bragg. For example, when we started our oral rehydration program, we started in one thana with 30,000 families, and we tried to be effective. And then once we have done that, we started expanding. But um, not all programs in BRAC are expanding at the same kind of pace. There are still vast numbers of programs which are still in small scale. I, let me give you an example. We have uh, just tested a model of training women members of union councils. Union councils are the lowest tier of the local government. And the government has decided that three members of the local government must be women. And we felt that these women were elected, but uh, not being provided opportunities to function. So we started in one district 
all the women members of the Union Council, we started training them as to their responsibilities, their authority, and the kind of work that they can do. So we have just trained one group of people, and they're wonderfully effective. So this is a pilot, but we'll probably go to scale in the next, next two to three years. But it takes about three to four years to develop a program before one thinks in terms of going to scale with it. And I think, meanwhile, you also need to develop all the other infrastructures to go to scale. Um, capacity to, to get your training department effectively in place, uh, the, your logistics department in place, your accounting department in place. You have to get the audit, internal audit, the monitoring department in place before you can go to scale. So basically, you have to think through all the other management systems um, which would be needed to control a large-scale program. In, in BRAC, we have got an internal audit department which has got about 70 people. We have uh, two kinds of monitoring that goes on. One is independent monitoring, which doesn't report to program heads, reports to a, a head of audit and monitoring. Uh, so they are independent. And then another group of people who are within the project, but they're program monitoring, so managers understand what's going on. So we have both. Um, and then, of course, research is completely independent, and they can come out with any uh, results of programs, uh, which sort of informs us as to how we are doing. So I think, I think most organizations don't do that very effectively. Um, we discovered that about um, you know, a quarter of our children died before their fifth birthday. And we uh, also knew that half of them died from diarrhea, 252 per thousand. And we felt that we needed to do something about that. But BRAC was still a small organization at that time. Uh, we had about 300 people. We decided that since BRAC was the kind of organization which knows how to go to rural areas and how to transmit information and transmit knowledge. The best thing would be to go and teach every person, every one woman in every household, how to make oral rehydration fluid at home. If they could do that at home, then they will not be dependent on my marketed product, which will cost them something. So initially, we thought that we should first test it so the first 30,000 uh, households were done, and we sent out a monitoring team. We found only 6% of the households were using oral rehydration therapy. We found out that uh, some of the oral rehydration workers themselves were not using oral rehydration for when they had diarrhea. They went to, the, went to rural pharmacies and bought drugs, which sort of, which sort of stops uh, diarrhea. It is, which is dangerous, actually. So we brought all these, all our oral rehydration workers back to basically teach them exactly how oral rehydration worked in the body. So once they were convinced that they, their teaching improved, then we did another monitoring for the next 30,000 uh, households which were taught. And we found that uh, it went up to 18%. Then, of course, we fielded our research team they found out that uh, most women who didn't use oral rehydration told 
them that uh, our husbands, our men in the households, don't like it. Since our entire program was focused on teaching women, we had completely ignored men in the households. So after that, of course, our program also included meetings with men. And also we went into mosques, village markets. So that seemed to have worked quite well. But how do we know that the women who are transmitting this knowledge is doing it properly? If it is not properly done, and women were making solutions which were too much salt, it could be dangerous for the child. So we decided that we would break down the knowledge transmission to 10 points. We'll pay our oral rehydration worker on the basis of retention of knowledge and the quality of oral rehydration solution made by the woman. So one month after the women taught these households, a group of monitors will go in and check 10% of the households as to how many of the 10 points that they remembered and whether they can make the oral rehydration solution. The solution made by the woman would be taken to a laboratory and tested. So that improved quality dramatically. But then how do we know that the monitors who are monitoring them were doing the right thing? So we devised a system. Um, we wanted our oral rehydration worker to write down the name of the youngest member of the household that they visited. And that information was not available to the monitor, the youngest person's name. And then that part of it was taken care of. Um, the monitors ensured that they went to the household, found out the name of the youngest person in the household. We always matched that. So that um, created very high quality program. And then we first, initially we covered one quarter of the household first three years, and then the next three years another quarter of the household. And then the last four years we took out the rest of the country. When we were doing the last half of the country, the government took up the immunization program for the country, expanded program of immunization. So we took up the half of the country. Immunization program was added to our oral rehydration program. Our programs on oral rehydration and immunization had a big impact on infant mortality reduction. From 252 per thousand child deaths, now the under five deaths has come down to 78. 75, in fact. It's better than India's uh, under five mortality rate. So this immunization program and oral rehydration, which took us to every household in Bangladesh, gave us the confidence that we could in fact cover the entire country with whatever program we started. Before that we were such kind of projects in different locations and we thought that if we did very well it will be replicated by some by government or somebody else, some other entities. But then we came to the conclusion that nobody is going to replicate us, it's us who is going to replicate ourselves. So whether it is in health or education or microfinance or agricultural development, we could. We were confident that we could do it throughout the country. We also needed to develop the capacity within the organization to be able to train large numbers of people. So we have now 14 training centers. I felt that we couldn't have gone into 35,000 schools 
if we didn't have the training facilities first built up. Uh, the teachers are village women, uh, high school education. We provide 15 days of training initially, and then we deploy them in teaching a class. But then we provide two visits every week by a supervisor who goes and checks her. So every 10 teachers, we have one supervisor. And then once a month, we get them in for a refresher course one day. Uh, we find that most of the teachers that we have do far better than normal primary school teachers that the government has, who has probably more education, but then no supervision, no training. So we are quite happy with these uh, paraprofessional teachers whom we train and deploy. In organizations such as BRAC, most of the activities are done in groups. The whole system in BRAC is developed in such a way that uh, people have to work together to implement programs. Uh, and I think our training program in BRAC also provides uh, the kind of skills needed to work together in, in, in groups. You also need management to manage larger numbers of people. So management development has to be done to develop young managers into taking more mature, more larger tasks. Uh, we have sent out a large numbers of our staff for training abroad to doing MAs, PhDs, and so on, postgraduate training. And we have also tried to develop NGO management and leadership training in Bangladesh. And we have an international program where others are coming from various countries to have a diploma course in Bangladesh, which we provide together with SIT, School of International Training in Vermont. And BRAC provides a diploma course in NGO management and leadership. The most important value that we try to uh, transfer to BRAC staff is that every human being has got potential and can do a lot more things that we imagine. The poorest of the poor can do a lot more things that we are ready to give them credit for. So basically, a belief in human beings' ability to change and to act that is the first thing that we try and inculcate. Then, of course, that all human beings are equal. Every human being is equal, whether it's men or women, or whether it is poor or rich, or whether it is uh, educated and illiterate. Human equality is something that we try to inculcate through our training programs and also our various discussions and, and values that we practice within BRAC. One problem about uh, and being an NGO, not having the kind of resources like a foundation, for example, is that you are dependent on funding from donors. And uh, donor funding is never certain. So one has to be careful about expanding to a level where donor funding is no longer available and suddenly you have to scale back your programs, which is very difficult and creates problems of confidence within the organization. But if you have been able to develop um, you know, funding sources, resource mobilization within the organization, then of course it gives you the kind of confidence that even if donor funding were not available, you'll still be able to sustain in a significant way uh, over the next few years. So I think um, sustainability issues are important for scaling up. I think donors also like the idea that the organization is not totally dependent on them.
And they also like the idea that if the organization itself contributes to a program, they feel happier to contribute to it rather than totally funding a program themselves. Uh, so that's uh, important. BRAC's budget, uh, the, about 20% is financed by bilateral donors and multilateral donors, but the other 80% is generated within the country, and most of it actually comes from poor people. The biggest chunk comes from service charge for our microfinance program. Uh, almost 50% of the, of the funds actually come from them and the rest of it comes from our businesses that we do, and also the service charge for various services that we provide to poor people. Microfinance, we started in 1974, but initially our lending, uh, credit, and savings work was collective. We came to individual lending in 1978. In our microfinance program, we have got about four million borrowers. Historically, we have been receiving more than 98% um, of our money back. We are very cost conscious. We are also looking at surpluses created by our enterprises. There is a market perspective in everything, including in, even in development programs. You'll find that there is uh, thinking about whether we want to do this at this cost or something alternative at that cost. These are being looked at all the time. We have service charge uh, in BRAC for various services that we provide. Uh, so our extension workers who go and supervise these vegetable gardens provide them service in terms of supplying of seeds and things like that, giving them advice what kind of fertilizer they should use. So it's a small sum of money, but we feel that the services we provide, if it is completely free, that they will not value the service so much. If we charge something, then of course we make our worker also accountable to the person who is being provided some service. Uh, we also have a small service charge for poor people coming to see our doctor. If it was completely free, then the, then the doctor would not be held responsible for uh, good um, practice. If they pay something, then they will demand better service from the doctor. So that's how we, we look at it. We do um, allow everybody to come into the health center. For our group members who are poor people, they pay a small fee of 10 taka to see a doctor and get medicine. But then if you are an outsider and can pay more, you are charged 20 taka. We found that almost uh, 60 to 80% of our costs are recovered from fees. So we are still looking for a 100% cost recovery in our uh, community health centers. Once we have attained that, then of course we don't need to uh, put in more money or seek more funding from donors and so on. Then we can go on expanding and then provide better service. I think um, ultimate goal would be to become self-financing so that we are not dependent on donors at all. But I think in the foreseeable future, I see that uh, the donor money will be needed and we will probably continue to have 10 to 20% of our funding from donors. I also think that there is an advantage of having some donors available for funding our programs. I think one good thing about donor funding is that the donors do bring in uh, expertise 
And I think the debate and discussions between experts coming from donor side together with our people, sometimes there is a learning, cross-learning happens. So it's, it's, it's a good discussion and debate that takes place, which, which enriches our program. Uh, we have a number of commercial ventures. We are trying to develop profits, but the profit itself is, again, goes into either education or healthcare or something. So profit doesn't go to anybody else. The idea is not only to serve these people, but also to generate an income, which ultimately will support BRAC's development activities. We have uh, something like 200,000 women who borrow money from us to buy cows, and many of them you know, find it difficult to sell milk. And so we set up this dairy plant so that, that their milk could be collected and we could uh, market it in towns. And they could get a fair price for their milk. We are collecting milk from particularly depressed areas where milk prices are low because nobody is buying their milk. So we have got about 20 to 30 centers all over the country where we, can, we are collecting milk from and then we bring them to Dhaka and we have pasteurized milk, we have yogurt, we have got chocolate milk and we have all kinds of other products with mango milk and so on. And we are also setting up a powder milk plant. The reason is your cows produce more milk during the winter than in the summertime when almost a quarter of Bangladesh goes underwater. So you don't have much grassland available. So. Uh, in these months, you can collect more milk than you can sell to customers. So during the scarce months, you can then mix it with uh, milk and produce more milk. But then we also look at the, the whole question of the breed of cows that we have in Bangladesh. They seem to be very emaciated, producing very little milk. So we have been looking at improving breeds of cows. So we have got artificial insemination program going on. We have got about 1,000 centers. What I'd like to see in the next 10 to 15 years, Bangladesh's cow breed is going to be quite different from what it is today. We have two, two million women who are raising poultry in their households. They needed proper feed so that they're they get more eggs, get fattened chickens so that they can sell it at a higher price. So we set up a feed mill. In fact, we have got three feed mills. Once we gone into feeds, we looked at what Bangladesh produces. Best poultry feed, the main bulk of the, of the cereal is maize. But Bangladesh didn't produce any maize. So we had to do it in, with wheat, which was not as good as maize. So in 1991, for the first time in Bangladesh, we imported five tons of maize seeds, hybrid seeds, from Australia and gave it to farmers. And we said that, all right, you grow maize. If there is no market for your products, we'll buy all your maize at six taka per kilo. But none of them came to us. They could sell it at higher price. Next year, we imported 50 tons. And the next year, we got 200 tons. So we, next year we thought that why do we import all these hybrid maize seeds ourselves? We, we go into joint venture with the Australians. So we produce about 700, 800 tons annually, two-thirds of Bangladesh's hybrid maize seeds. Uh, the reason we have done that is because if we didn't do this, ultimately our poultry industry will not grow. The maize has to be produced in this country at a low enough price so that we can compete with Thailand, Malaysia, who export poultry to Japan and France and so on. 
So we have looked at poultry not only in terms of poverty alleviation program for the poor women who was going to have nine hens and one cock, but also industry as a whole. The poultry industry in Bangladesh is developing because the maize is now available in the countryside. The other area in poultry that we looked at was high mortality of poultry. Unless you are able to immunize poultry from various diseases that we have in the villages, it is a very uncertain kind of business. So one of our group members was trained as poultry vaccinator. Three days of training, but then the essential element was that she will be linked to the livestock department of the government who will provide her the vaccines she will bring the vaccine to the village early in the morning so that she can vaccinate all the hens and cocks and then get paid for it. But cold chain maintenance is a problem. Vaccine has to be kept under a cold chain. So we devised a system uh, but that if she puts the vaccine in, the ripe, in a ripe banana, it'll keep the temperature at the same level. The banana is a good insulator. So that's one area that uh, we developed, and we had about 49,000 women who were trained in poultry vaccination. So that brought down the poultry mortality in the countryside. And then, of course, we started giving them hybrid hens and cocks. So instead of 60 eggs a year, you get 280 eggs a year. So that has improved dramatically, and also income in the villages. I think the most uh, important uh, program that which didn't work, I suppose, is, is sericulture, silk production, which we have not succeeded yet in getting the kind of employment and income that we hoped sericulture would generate. Uh, we started in one area, and then it did quite well. We trained the silk worm rearers, the spinners, and the weavers in an area where traditionally silk was not produced. So we felt that maybe throughout Bangladesh we could uh, grow silkworms and uh, grow mulberry trees and then we could train women in silk worm rearing and spinning and weaving. So in 1990 we started planting mulberry trees throughout the country. Uh, from 1991 to 1995 we planted 25 million mulberry trees in 13,000 kilometers of roadside verges. And then we hired about 10,000 women to look after these trees. We provided them 90 kilograms of wheat per month, which was provided by WFP, World Food Program. We also started training women in silkworm rearing and spinning and weaving. But ultimately what happened, the program didn't succeed. 1998, we had a big flood where almost 90% of the country was underwater, and it was the water was there for more than 30 days, and most of our uh, silk <laughs> mulberry plants um, was destroyed. But then there was another problem. China started dumping silk in Bangladesh and India and Thailand and so on at a very low price. But Chinese prices are going up right now, and we are hoping that if uh, Chinese yuan is uh, revalued, then the prices of Chinese silk will go up a bit further and then our silk will become much more competitive. When we started silk production in one area of Bangladesh, uh, we found that it was difficult to market products, uh, silk products in rural areas. So we felt that a marketing outlet in Dhaka would be useful. 
So Arong was started. The basic idea was that uh, craftspeople who find it very difficult to market their products in the, in the villages has to be given uh, not only uh, money on delivery, but also in some cases training and some cases designs. And then we felt that there needs to be a training and production center in rural Bangladesh where craftspeople could come and be trained and get into various kinds of occupations and, um, and activities. So Aisha Abid Foundation was created with a view to providing um, work for women in crafts and also to provide designs and um, training services to them. Um, so Aisha Abid Foundation and Arong worked together so something like 30,000 women work for Aisha Abed Foundation and their product production is marketed by our own. Apart from the Aisha Abed Foundation and its craftspeople, there are also cooperatives throughout Bangladesh who come to our own with their products. So this has been going on for the last uh, 20 years. And our own is doing exceedingly well. I think our total sale is something like $25 million. BRAC as a brand is well respected in Bangladesh. It's throughout the country. People know the name BRAC. And so uh, the, the brand name BRAC is, is quite important. So whenever we produce anything, let's say um, poultry feed, it is very well accepted. People think that the BRAC is not going to mix anything other than the most nutritious food for poultry. And Arong name is also very well respected, but then Arong is restricted to the uh, urban areas. For example, you will find that our milk is branded as Arong because most of our milk is marketed in cities. And city people know Arong. Um, but when we, pro we are producing now uh, iodized salt, uh, salt is going to go everywhere throughout the country. So we have branded that as Black Salt. So uh, BRAC and Arong brand is used by BRAC all the time. They're very useful. BRAC has gone into joint ventures with other companies. For example, we, about 10 years ago, we set up the Delta BRAC housing finance. When BRAC wanted to do housing finance, we felt that we should get some companies who has got interest in this line. So we got two insurance companies, the Delta, Green Delta Insurance Company and Delta Life Insurance Company to be our partner. And we also got IFC, the World Bank's uh, corporate affiliates who um, invest money in, in companies to be a part, to be an investor in that inter enterprise. So that is now the biggest uh, housing finance uh, corporation in Bangladesh. We have also gone into other companies like we have got a company which is with Concord Builders You've got Black Concord Lands Limited, where we are trying to buy land and we want to provide housing for middle class and lower middle class people and poor people in city areas. International partnerships, we have joint ventures with Australia for producing maize seeds. And these are hybrid maize seeds that we are extending in Bangladesh. We also got a joint venture with China on hybrid rice. The Chinese are working with us here in Bangladesh in producing hybrid rice seeds. And we have been doing it for the last three or four years. And hopefully over the next few years, we will be producing enough seeds to meet the needs of Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh produces only 2% of our rice is in hybrids. 
We are hoping in the next 10 years it should go up to about 30% and then the production will grow by something like 20% with hybrid rice than the normal HYV rice. Then we have got the social development, which is basically providing human rights and legal education to all of our group members. We provide legal services for all kinds of disputes that occur in the countryside, particularly the poor people who need legal aid support from BRAC. And also we provide um, rural drama. We do a lot of folk drama in the villages to put across ideas on gender issues, women's exploitation, things like that, which seems to work well through a drama. You can put across an idea if you talk for hundreds of hours that doesn't have the same kind of impact. So we have hundreds of groups of folk players who go from countryside to countryside and, and stage drama on issues that we, we think is important to be able to transmit. Last week I saw a folk play on uh, HIV AIDS and they wonderful. In Bangladesh we don't have a big problem yet but we are trying to get people aware of the dangers of AIDS infection, what kind of things they need to do now to, in order to protect themselves from AIDS infection. There are two um, areas that I'd like to reflect on. One is that you try and serve poor people as much as you can directly. But then you also realize that there are other entities like the government of Bangladesh who also needs to serve their citizens. So what we felt that if you can create demand by organizing your people, then the demand has to be met by the system in the sense that if there is a demand for health services and if you can organize people and they demand services from the state. What was needed also, that the government to become responsive, you also needed to help them to become responsive. Uh, let me give you an example. We are you know, creating demand in the countryside for primary education. We are trying to get all children into primary schools. But in many primary schools, you'll find that there is no classrooms. Uh, the number of teachers is much less than what is needed. So we are also trying to help the government now to train teachers, to deploy them. So what I'm saying is that we need to work at both, both ends. The vaccines for poultry, not only that the demand was created from the field, but the government's ability to respond needed to be helped. In other words, we had to help the government to produce more vaccines. We had to ensure that the vaccines were reaching the livestock officer's fridge. So we also tried to help them. And then cold chain maintenance. The fridges were not working. So what do you do? If you left it to them, it will take them six months to get the sanction from the government to repair the fridge. So we had our own fridge repair team to go and help the livestock department fridge to work. So in a, in a way, what we try to do is creating demand in the countryside and also trying to help the system, in other words, the government system, to be able to respond effectively to it. Um, so both things are, were needed in Bangladesh. The government of Bangladesh uh, obviously has provided the kind of space for us to expand our programs in such a way that we become a large institution. In all societies, governments are keen not to get institutions which are as large as BRAC. In India, for example, there is hardly any institution 
even quarter the size of Bragg simply because the government hasn't provided enough space for NGOs to grow to an extent that they would match or even surpass the size of uh, governmental institutions. I have always felt that BRAC needs to do things when the government is not unable to function effectively in a particular area. But when the government is able to provide the right kind of service to our people, for example, if all children were in school in the government, in the government schools, and if they are getting meaningful learning, then I don't see why BRAC should be remaining in providing primary education to our children. It's like a Bailey Bridge. Uh, you build the Bailey Bridge when there's no other bridge available. When the big bridge is built, then the Bailey Bridge is removed. So we are looking for the big bridge provided by the state. When they are able to do that, then we don't need our Bailey Bridges to support our people. It is important to, in order to bring about large-scale change in a society, you need to work together with national systems. Uh, but then uh, one has to be very astute about this, seize opportunities whenever this comes about. Most NGOs find it very difficult to work with governments, but again, if you don't work with governments, these, the large-scale change is difficult to bring about. So whenever possible, it is uh, imperative that um, non-governmental organizations or social entrepreneurs try and work with their systems in such a way that uh, larger-scale um, impact can be had from their work. It is a challenge in the sense that not all government um, departments accept that you could provide some support and help to them. So basically one needs to work with the ministries and departments which accept your support. For example, the secondary education uh, department has given us freedom to try and help them in training better teachers and so on. But primary education is more closed, so we are not being able to work very closely with the primary, primary school system. Uh, so this happens in, in all ministries. I mean, in family planning, we worked very well. With health, we didn't. In agriculture, we are working quite well. But uh, irrigation program, we are not working very well. So it's, it depends on the responses from each ministry and their personnel in the ministry and so on. So in many cases, it's individuals who decide whether to open themselves up to uh, NGO participation in their uh, capacity building and so on. If you look at BRAC programs, uh, there are large numbers of volunteers who work in BRAC programs in the field, particularly volunteers from the community. The poor people that we serve, they volunteer a lot of time and energy for a lot of different activities that BRAC has brought them into. There are some 50,000 uh, women who volunteer as um, poultry vaccinator. There are some uh, 40,000 Shasta Shebikas, which are our rural health workers, who are women. So there are large numbers of people who work in BRAC uh, as a volunteer. Uh, and they volunteer because uh, this gives them satisfaction in serving their own community. There is some financial benefit, but there is also the status that comes from volunteering in a particular uh, activity. I believe that Human civilization is the cumulative actions of all men in a, in a, in a society, in, in any society. It's not just one individual or one 
political leader who will be judged. It is all of our actions. You can contribute to your society, your community by doing many different things. You could be a bureaucrat, you could be a public servant, and if you can do a very good, good job, then you serve your society. As a professor in a university, you serve your society. As an artist, as a dramatist, as a writer, you can serve your society. So my son, for example, he wants to go into politics. He thinks that his dad has worked all these years and really hasn't changed Bangladesh that much. So he wants to go into politics and change societies. It's all of us put together and our actions will be judged as what we are. It is the cumulative actions of all our people. series, Ashoka hopes to inspire and spread awareness about social entrepreneurship and scalable solutions to global problems. The series is being used in the education arena, among businesses interested in corporate responsibility, by international development and civil society organizations, and by individuals seeking new careers and innovative ways to change the world. Ashoka would like to know what you think of this series. Please email your thoughts and ideas to ashokadvd at ashoka.org. Recognizing the power of individual innovation and social change, Bill Drayton founded Ashoka in 1981. Ashoka identifies and invests in extraordinary individuals with unprecedented ideas for change in their communities, supporting them, their ideas, and institutions through all phases of their careers. For more information or to get involved, visit www.ashoka.org. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And if you'd like us to produce new and even more exciting programs in the future, we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. Thank you, Limelight, for your support of the Conversations Network. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Sheila Setharaman. Our website editor was Marguerite Rigoliozo. The series producer is Liz Evans. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll join us next time for another program from the Ashoka Social Entrepreneurship Series. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.